Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 39 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And on this episode, episode 39 of Inside Quizzing, we are coming off in a, a, a several-week hiatus uh, ever since, uh, let's see, district championships, or maybe I think we recorded one episode right after district. No, we didn't. It was uh, right after district championships, Scott and uh, Lily moved out into the Midwest, and they've been unpacking and so forth, and a lot of busy things have been happening ever since then. So now, July 1st, we are finally back into commission, and... Uh, to top it all off, we are no longer, we are out of hiatus, but we are also on mutual NPR mode uh, because both Scott and I upgraded our microphone systems for our respective uh, data center locations. And so we get to have much improved audio quality. So if you notice the audio quality improvement, uh, please let us know. And if you don't, um, please let us know also because it's kind of an experiment as we go through. So in episode 39 here, we're going to be uh, answering a listener question, a really in, uh, intelligent uh, listener question. And we're going to be talking about a couple of bizarre and rare split CVRs, uh, whether or not fouls can be challenged, and several other sorts of uh, uh, rulebook sorts of things. We're going to talk a little bit about internationals, because international starts in less than a week. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about some international rules there. And and we're going to talk some about next year in terms of uh, PNW, uh, Pacific Northwest Bible Quizzing. We'll talk a little bit about the progress of what's going on with CBQZ. And if we have any time, maybe a few other topics. So with that, we'll just kind of dive right into the first question, which comes in from a listener and uh, via email. And I'm just going to read this. And then uh, read the, the questions that came in or the email that came in. And then, Scott, why don't you... Um, kind of jump in at the end here and give us a, a, a few little thoughts. I have my own response that I wrote up here, but I don't want to be talking this entire time because it gets boring. So here we go. Uh, here, Here is the email that comes in. I have a highly theoretical question. I don't know if it will ever show up in any quizzing material, but it's an interesting question. There are two rules about context that are important to this question. Quote, the answer to the situation a uh, question must be in context and, quote, a pronoun uh, may need to be identified only if the identification antecedent is in context, end quote. Let's say there's a hypothetical situation on a quote in verse 11 of some material. It's a, quote, to whom, unquote, question. Uh, the pronoun she occurs in verse 6, referring to the person who is the answer, but the clarification of that pronoun is only in verse 1. Can a quizzer be required to go back five verses to the pronoun, which is in the context of the quote, and then five more verses to clarify the pronoun if such a question uh, were written with the answer being a pronoun, i.e. if uh, my idea is not allowed, would a quizzer be called out of context for answering with a name rather than a pronoun? So Scott, what do you think about the a couple of questions here? Very interesting stuff. So I think this is an awesome question, and it really hits on some places the rulebook is not perfectly clear. Now, thankfully, um, it is very rare for his hypothetical to come up. But when I am writing situation questions, so this is in question writing mode, there are a few principles I rely on. First is the verse number where the quotation starts is where I lock my starting point from when determining the five verse context. Um, it's really rare on situation questions to use the five verses down 
part of the context. Um, so that's why I choose the first verse. I bet you, I really try to be generous to the quizzer. So if there was a situation where it's just a one verse quote and they were five verses down, like I would, or like maybe it's a two verse quote and they're five verses down from the second verse. Um, I would try to give them the benefit of the doubt to not call them out of context. But when I'm writing questions, I just use that first verse as where I'm locking my context starting point from. And then I say the antecedent and any clarifications have to be within five verses additive of that starting point. That's it. I don't think, um, even though the rule book is a little bit ambiguous on this, I don't think saying that the answer to a situation question has to be in context means you can go five verses away to get to the pronoun and then another five verses to get to the clarification of the pronoun. I think all content of the answer has to be within five verses of my self-chosen first verse of a potential two-verse quotation. Um, So if a quotation starts in verse 12 and continues into verse 13, I just ignore verse 13 and use verse 12 as my starting point. Five verses additive is verse seven, so the antecedent has to be the antecedent and any clarifications, or I guess the pronoun and any antecedents have to be in verses seven through twelve. Now, it does feel a little weird because an antecedent in verse seven could be seven verses away from the second verse of the quotation, um, so technically out of context from each other. Um, so I guess um, any situation question answers should be within five verses of both the first and second verses of the quotations. Um, and then to the ending part of his question, it gets really dicey if there are multiple descriptors of a proper name. So let's say there's Rachel or she or the crippled woman or the Samaritan woman all referring to the same person. Um, you have to decide if a quizzer saying one of them that's out of context takes them out of context because it's not an incorrect answer, like it's the right person. And so for the most part, again, I try to give the quizzers the benefit of the doubt if they're always talking about the same person. I really put a high burden of them, like, like, did they really go out of context? Or are they just saying another correct name of this person that happens to be from somewhere else? Um, I think we we did run into some situations about the man born, like, the man who was blind from birth, um, who was also the crippled man. And um, I think I did determine that the man who had been blind from birth was enough, like, words together in sequence to take a quizzer out of context, even though it was referring to the same person. But in general, if it's just one proper name and one pronoun, and they happen to be out of context from each other, I'm not going to, that's not going to be enough for me to call the quizzer out of context. What do you think? Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, In fact, I would go so far as to say if there was a pronoun within context with its antecedent outside of context, I would not require the pronoun for the answer. I would try to write around the answer. I, I think as a question writer, if I make a mistake and I write a question that requires the pronoun, I have to require, I have to not require the antecedent. Um, so that becomes kind of interesting because then if you end up in a situation where somebody says the antecedent, but not the pronoun, they aren't wrong. Uh, but are they correct enough? I generally, so even though pronouns are written on questions as the, as part of the answer, to me, it's just a signal to the quiz master to know, to, to say something like, um, can you clarify he or they or them? Um, but I don't think a quizzer has to say um, the pronoun at all if they get the proper name that is the clarification. I agree. I think it means the same thing because essentially it's certainly not a keyword, and we can replace a keyword with another word that means the same thing. So if it's she and the the answer is Martha, the antecedent is Martha, somebody says Martha, 
I don't, I wouldn't call them out of context. I would say they're, they're just clarifying she, which is in context. Um, but I can only require the she, uh, as a quiz master, but as a question writer, I wouldn't, I would avoid writing the question entirely because like you, when I see the word she sort of instinctively, it, it calls out for its antecedent to be labeled. Uh, it, it seems, it seems like a very weak answer to have she and not ask for Martha. And if I can't require Martha, then to me, that seems like a, a weak question overall. I agree. And so on situation questions and really any questions, if the only answer that I can really write is just a he, she, them, they, us, I don't like to write it. Now, you could think of some like multiple answer reference question where it's he and Philip um, and you don't actually want the proper the clarification of that pronoun because it's somewhere else. And this is a reference question. Um, But that's pretty rare. So in general, if the only really valid answer I can write to a question as a pronoun, I don't want to write that question. Yeah, totally agreed. Well, any other ideas on this one or should we move on? I don't think so. I think it's good that it shows differences in um, um, how people can interpret the rulebook and how context is kind of, I don't know, it's one of the mushiest parts of the rulebook. I'm kind of fine with it because I think you can't really objectively write context in a way that is um, in the best interest of quizzing. Um, But it definitely is probably the most subjective part of the rulebook. Yeah, indeed. Well, sounds good. Let's uh, move on. What do you got next? So the next one is from uh, John 1139. It's a situation question. Who said it? And the quotation is, but Lord, by this time there is a bad odor for he has been there four days. And the written answer was Martha, the sister of the dead man. And you were wondering if kind of that, that clause was really necessary, the sister of the dead man. I remember this. This came up from uh, district championships, didn't it? I think so. Yeah. So I have been thinking about this a little bit, and I think that it is required because John thinks that it's required. And who am I to disagree with John, uh, St. John, for that matter? Um, that being said, obviously, Martha is key enough. There, I don't believe they're – yeah – I mean, here's the thing. As a, as a quiz master, it's easy because it, as a quiz master, if it's written on the card, it's required. And I think in the context of just district championships, uh, I looked at this and said, it's on the card. It's required. Uh, but as a question writer, I'm approaching this and wondering if it shouldn't necessarily be required. But the thing is, I could see the argument that if I count somebody correct as Martha, I could see an enterprising, uh, captain challenging if the second clause was not included. Yeah, so I I feel pretty strongly about this. I think as a quiz master, what's presented to you is how you should ask the question unless it's just flat wrong. You know, like if it's a multiple answer, in the beginning God created what? Or if it's an interrogative, in the beginning God created what? And the answer is just the heavens. Well, that's wrong. Like it should be written with the earth. In a, you know, like you can't amend things as a quiz master if you think it's just – the incorrect amount of information, either too much or too little. But in this case, the question writer has decided, I want to include this clarifying clause. Um, it gives me more information about Martha, and I don't think the quiz master should be changing that on the fly. I also don't think there's a challenge here if the answer is either just Martha or Martha, the sister of the dead man. Um, I, def- I mean, even if the question writer wrote the answer as the sister of the dead man, and that was all that was required, that's bad question writing. I I don't think there's anything to challenge there either. Um, yeah, and when I'm writing questions, I like to make them 
as complete as I can. And there's clausal information here that's modifying Martha, gives us more information about her, and I want the quizzer to to know that and have to say it. Now, sometimes that quotation, the the clarifying clause could be a whole verse or a lot more, um, and you do have to draw the line at some point so that it's not an overly long answer, but I would always want to include this sort of modifying information for proper names. So I have a hypothetical for you. Imagine that you are a captain of a quiz team and I am a quizzer on a, uh, on a competitive, a, a competing team. And I jump on this question and I answer the sister of the dead man, but I don't say Martha and I'm counted correct. Are you going to challenge? Um, it would have to be like, I'm losing the meat because of this question for me to challenge because really? I don't think really. I can't challenge to say, like, it's a bad but valid question that should require Martha, but there's nothing I can say from the rulebook to make it required. Well, the fact that the word Martha, the name Martha, is right there. Um, I mean, it's like it's – I don't know. It, it feels like like if it wasn't included in the answer, it was like somebody was going out of their way to, like, not include the word Martha. Um, I don't know. It just it, – it, well, that's probably the only scenario that Martha would not be part of the answer, but I still don't right. think that there's anything that I can challenge. Like, what, like, what would I say from the rule book? You, well, you could say it was just uh, confusing. You could say it's confusing, I suppose. But it's not confusing. There's yeah. less information required than you would expect. So it's like, you're not going to be wrong for saying Martha, for saying too much for this question. And if you say less, I mean, yeah. To me, what trickier if, misleading is, yeah. Well, what if the answer was the sister? And I said the sister, and I got it correct. And I didn't say sister of the dead man. I didn't say Martha. I would watch the quiz master. If the quiz master just immediately goes, you're correct, then I would assume that that's what the card said. Um, but if the quiz master hesitated at all, I would, even if I don't know it for sure, challenge that I think the card says either Martha or of the dead man in addition to sister. And that is important information that, sh that should not be omitted. But if I had any indication that the sister is all that's on the card... I don't think I have any challenge. Yeah, I see your point. Um, I really it's wish there that was I a way don't... you can challenge it, though. I mean, it just it seems so awful. It's such a horrible, horrible question if written that way. Correct. So, but I th but unfortunately, you can't challenge something that's merely bad. If hmm. it is valid, not tricky, not misleading, all those things. Yeah. Yeah. True. Not true. I begrudgingly agree. <laughs> so this next one is on a chapter verse reference from John 2013. The question is, she said what? And the verse reads, it's a kind of a quotation. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. So if you are have, wanting your answer to be the quotation, they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him, but, you're, but the question is, she said what? It could be an awkward sort of flow for the quizzer to be quoting and for the quiz master to be prompting. Does that make sense? That does. This does. So this. So uh, I. I think this falls into the. It is perfectly valid, but Griffin hates it. Uh, sort of world, right? So the the idea of the the you know mixing things up and the order doesn't necessarily flow correctly. Although I would say it. I think it. I think it works. Um, so I think you could make a case for it being trickier misleading, um, because a quizzer is quoting backwards. Um, if they're not prompted after saying she said what, um, they're probably going for they have what or something like that. Um, there was definitely a question like this at internationals years back from, I think, Peter, 
wives, comma, in the same way, comma, submit your husbands and blah, 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 blah. And the quizzer was quoting and got to the in the same way what, quoting backwards, was not prompted, then added the wives, then was immediately prompted. And so it was like, well, I don't think it's in the same way what, even though that's what I thought off the bat, because I had to say wives in addition. And so gave wives what? It was ruled incorrect because the question was in the same way what, and the answer was wives, comma, submit to your husbands, and blah, 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 blah. And it's a very similar situation where it's tricky based on the way that we tell that everyone instructs reference quizzers to attack these questions. And it's just an interesting case because if you step back and kind of look at it from an English standpoint or a grammar standpoint, it's not really confusing. Um, but because of the best practice of how to answer a CVR, it's extremely confusing, I think. I don't know. Though, I don't think I would call it confusing. I would say it's difficult. I think it's it's very difficult uh, because of the way the grammar is placing the 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 C she said. Wow, I can't say it. Griffin can't say it. Um, the, the 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 way that the grammar is placing that in the middle of the quotation makes it more difficult. But I don't know that it's tricky or misleading. I mean, I think it's it's only misleading in the sense that our best practice for how to answer CVRs doesn't apply. Exactly, and I guess you could probably find verses that are written in such a way that figuring out what the CVR question is, is difficult, even ignoring the 50-50 ones, right? Right. So right. it's probably just one of those. Right. All righty. Next one? Yeah, next one. Let's do this one. So um, then Pilate, what? It's a multiple answer. Took Jesus and had him flogged. And I just wanted to revisit this construct, which is the two answers that make it a multiple answer have to happen in sequence. So the first thing has to be complete before the second thing can even happen. Right. Um, how do you feel about the validity of these? I think it's valid. I think it's 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 a multiple answer, even though you can't you can say them in a in the opposite order, but logically B must happen after A. Uh, but it's still two things. So I think I think it completely works as a multiple answer question. Yep, I agree. My my test for multiple answers is: can I split each of the answers and apply them to the question? Um, and I don't reverse them and say, does it still make logical sense? Yeah, I yeah I agree. Yeah, then Pilate had him flogged. Uh, perfectly works. Yep. All right. Here's an interesting one. Can fouls be challenged? I don't know. So because I am me, and the rule book says does not say that you cannot challenge a foul. I think they can. And my reasoning is this: the rule book clearly says if the officials fail to award a foul and a coach or a quizzer brings it to the attention of the officials, they cannot then award a foul for that situation. They can merely say, um, oops, um, we should have awarded a foul, here's a warning, and in the future in this situation, we will award a foul. But on the opposite, if the officials award a foul and some quizzer doesn't think that it should have been awarded, I absolutely think that can be challenged. Um, one of the clearest examples would be if a quizzer is fouled for jumping before the question has started, but the, but, but the quiz master had made a mouth shape, but not an audible noise. To me, I think the quizzers have to have recourse challenge because that's an incorrect application of the rule book. But I don't remember who was, had a differing standpoint, a viewpoint, but, um, they thought that fouls couldn't be challenged at all. I think there are two different kinds of fouls. I think there are technical fouls and there are, 
I don't know, for lack of a better word, subjective fouls. I don't, uh, I, many years ago, I want to say it was like 20 years ago. I, um, you know, as a true quizzing nerd, I decided I would write from scratch, uh, an entirely different implementation of a rule book. And I actually wrote fouls as being kind of two different categories where one was considered you just, you, you didn't do anything intentionally wrong. You just made a mistake, right? So your light going off before the question is called, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, or sorry, before the question is called, but, or after the question is called, but before you make an, uh, a, a shape of your mouth, right? That kind of thing. Thing. Uh, that's a technical foul. Uh, and I classified it differently in terms of like fouls that were given for like poor sportsmanship or for, you know, intentionally throwing a question, these sorts of things, right? I, th I put those fouls in a different category and said, like, those fouls are negative, egregious, not egregious is too, too strong of a word, but like, it almost seemed like uh, mal intent or, or negative intent, right, on, on the part of uh, a quizzer or or something that was happening in quizzing because uh, it was not good and I wanted to get rid of it for the value of the quizzing process. Whereas a technical foul is just you know somebody made it made an interesting mistake, right? So if somebody makes an interesting, sorry, not interesting, if somebody makes an unintentional mistake, right, and they get a foul. I think, yes, those can be challenged if, and, and absolutely, because again, it goes back to a misapplication of the rule book, right? But then we go onto the other side of those questions, the other kind of fouls, sort of the negative fouls, right? Uh, where, cause I mean, and, and this is the thing, if somebody gets a, I almost want to call them positive fouls, because if somebody gets a technical foul, I don't think that's a, it's not a particularly big deal. It's like, yeah, okay. Don't do that again, but it's not a big deal, right? But a negative foul is kind of a bigger deal. And those are seemingly all subjective, right? So like, how do you know if somebody is intentionally throwing a question, right? If a team is throwing a question or a quizzer is throwing a question, that's really kind of like, it's up to the officials to sort of subjectively kind of go, yeah, it seems really overwhelmingly clear they did, but I can't prove it. And so if you, if you, issue a foul there, then what's the captain going to do? You know, if the captain's going to challenge that and say, no, we weren't trying to, but then it's like, now we're arguing over the, the challenge at that point is my opinion, my subjective point of view is different than yours. Uh, and then I just like, I don't see how a foul can be adjudicated in, in that context. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, but I think in general, fouls, like the awarding of a foul can be challenged, but if I'm a quiz master, my burden for reversing my decision, if it's those quote-unquote negative fouls, as you have termed them, would be unbelievably high. Just like um, my standard for throwing out a question on only the grounds that it's tricky or misleading is very high, right? right. Or throwing out a question because of um, a noise disruption. Like the bar is just really high. But I'm still going to allow challenges on that basis, you know? Um, and so I think, yeah, I'm definitely more talking about those positive fouls where um, there's a misapplication of the rule book. Um, but I'm not I'm not necessarily limiting it, limiting it just to those. But that's the intent of what I'm talking about, if that makes sense. Right. Now, would you be in favor of a rule book change that split fouls into two categories like that? Potentially. I mean, this is something that comes up so rarely, but I just in the very specific rare situation that I talked about, if a quizmaster did 
misapply a foul, I want there to be some recourse for getting it right. Um, and I don't know that the rulebook needs more language separating that sort of foul from the other subjective, more negative sort of fouls. But yeah, anyway. Well, and, think- and, in, and in my sort of, you know, nerdy, my super nerd out, you know, quiz rules version, part of the reason I separated them out was I don't, I don't remember if I allowed challenging on either one. I don't, I don't think it ever came up in the rules, but the reason I separated, separated them was because of the penalty, uh, where technical fouls had a very low penalty. And in fact, you had to have several technical fouls in a row before it became a, a significant penalty. Like in, in fact, I, if I remember correctly, like you could have a series of technical fouls in a row and the worst that would happen is you would just have to sit out the question. Like there was never a negative, uh, you know, score penalty, uh, in, imposed. Whereas on the other side of the fence, the negative fouls always had a negative score impact, regardless of when the foul took place. Interesting. I think currently there's no difference between them. It's just the fourth foul and every subsequent right. one is negative 10, but interesting. Right. Because, I mean, the idea was I didn't want to punish somebody. I didn't want to punish a person or a team for making an innocent technical mistake. Right. But if somebody were to do something that was contrary to the spirit of of quizzing, was rude, you know, disrespectful or something like that, to the point of, you know, being issued a foul – I didn't want that first foul, if it was, let's say, the, the first foul for the individual in the team, to not carry some sort of penalty. Because um, it was kind of like, well, I can, you know, because essentially what it means is I can be a little bit disrespectful up front, and then as long as I get my act together, I'm fine. Um, it's kind of like, no, I think the disrespect thing needs to be penalized immediately and universally, equally, right? Regardless if it's one time or, or seven. Yeah, I see. Um. Should we move on? Yeah. What's next? This is a, an interesting one I just added, which is um, it happened at district championships. It was a bonus question and it was a situation question. And the quiz master read the quote, the quizzer jumped and then did not get it right. And then it was challenged that you misread the beginning of the quote instead of saying like he was the man who you said he was a man who or something like that. Okay. And after deliberating, the quiz masters decided to let the question stand because they said this was a bonus question. The situation question as read was accepted as correct. Um, and because the entire quote was read, we don't think there was any misleading of the quizzer and we're going to move forward and decline the challenge. And I was wondering what you thought about that. That's interesting. I hope I wasn't at the table uh, for that one because I am strongly on the other side of that uh, ruling. I, I think it, if I'm the quiz master and I misread a question, even if it's a, an A versus the, uh, I, I think it needs to be thrown out. I would even go so far as to say, you know, I'm, I don't know if you know this about me. Uh, I, I don't think all the listeners know, but know this about me. I'm a recovering stutterer. Uh, I used to have a pretty significant stuttering problem when I was a lot younger. And so, you know, I'm usually pretty good about it, but occasionally if I'm really tired, the stutter can come back a little bit and, or, or sometimes I can get kind of hung up on a syllable or something like that. If I'm reading a question and I stumble over a syllable, even just kind of hanging on, on, on something like the pacing gets broken by more than just something incredibly tiny, then I, I think I have to throw it out because I think I'm, I'm sort of disrupting even the rhythm 
of the jumping that's there. So yeah, I mean, if I misread a situation question, even if it's a the versus a, I, I think I've got to throw it out. Now, this is me trying to be difficult, but all of the reasons that you presented for throwing a question out as far as disrupting and timing, wouldn't those be null and void on a bonus question? You are correct. But here's the thing. So, okay. So when it comes to timing, you're correct. So I think I would probably be less hard on myself if it was purely a timing issue. So if I read a situation question as a bonus or any any question, right? I read a question as a bonus and I stumbled over the uh, a word, I caught myself, I simply started over and reread the question from the beginning. I think I'm okay with that. Uh because again, it's it's a bonus question, that's fine. However, if I read the question and I replace a word the with a or whatever it happens to be. I don't read it word perfectly and I allow the question to go forward. Then I think I have to throw it out. Interesting. Because my initial thought was very much like you where you misread it. You got to throw it out. But I really liked the reasoning by the quiz masters and thought it was the better ruling than throwing the question out because they but don't determined you run it into. Don't you run into subjective things, though, right? How many words can I change before it becomes invalid? Sure, right? I think there definitely is some amount of subjectivity. So if you want to just say, if I misread anything or have any off pace, I'm throwing, I'm making the decision as the quiz master to throw it out. And you could definitely do that. But I know that there are times when I'm reading questions and I stumble just a little bit on a word. Um, but the way, like, I don't know how to say this, you kind of know if the quizzers are jumping on recognition or not because they're either jumping at like three syllables or they're jumping at 10. And so there have been times where I slightly misread a question and I can tell that it had zero impact on the quizzers jumping and I just finish it um, and let whatever happens stand. But if I have any inkling that like, cause you can see lights come on, right? If I have any inkling that the timing was disrupted or the amount of information was disruptive or anything, I, I throw it out immediately at that point. Um, and I think as a quiz master, it's key that if you're deciding to throw out a question because you misread it, you have to do it right at the moment of your misreading and not when you um, know the outcome of the question. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree with your second point there. I wince at your first point, though, right? Because like it, it just becomes – and again, like if you stumble over a word in a bonus and you stop and start over or you correct yourself – I'm okay with that because you're not talking about somebody jumping. They've already got the jump. They're just going to listen to your entire, your entire recitation of the question, right? So in that part, I'm fine. But in a bonus situation where you say a word wrong, right? I think you have to toss out the question. Now, maybe you say it wrong and you're not aware of it and then it gets challenged. And then you're like, okay, if I said it wrong, I think it has to be thrown out. I, I think at that point you, you have to provide them with a different question because the, 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 you're, you're on the spectrum of ambiguity of how much did what I say wrong cause the quizzer to answer it incorrectly. Now, if I say a the versus an a or something like that, the probability that that threw off the quizzer is extraordinarily low, but it is still above zero. And so like, again, it just kind of falls back into this notion of like, I feel like if we have the opportunity to be objective, we should be objective. Hard to disagree with that. Um, shall we move on? Yeah, let's move on. 
So this next one also came up at district championships, question type minimums and maximums. So the rulebook says question type minimums must be met in the numbered questions 1 to 20, and question type maximums cannot be exceeded, including A and B questions. And I believe you were saying that because it does not say that question type minimums must be met in the numbered questions 1 to 20, excluding A and B questions, that you didn't think it should be applied that way. Yes. Basically, that and I remember this because we were we were talking. I remember this conversation, and because we were having it over IM actually uh, between you were in room one and I was in room two, and I think we were we were or maybe it was I forget exactly, but we were talking about this. And uh, yeah, I, I think if it's not explicit in the rulebook, if it's not objective, I I can't. I don't think we can apply additional standards that we believe need to be true that are not in the rulebook. I can get on board that. I just think it's um, somewhere greater than heavily implied, but yet short of unbelievably explicitly stated. <laughs> and, I, and, and I just don't know that it's that heavily implied, though. I think I think it's heavily. I think you believe that it's heavily implied, but I don't know that it is from my perspective. I'd, I'd like to quote your lovely wife on this one too. Uh, where I'll I'll invoke uh, the the Lily clause of what if you took the rule book completely out of of the quizzing context and provided it to people who had never seen quizzing, what would their quizzing look like? And I don't know that they would come to the same conclusion that that it that it needs to be required within the the court uh, one to twenty. Well, maybe this is an indication of uh, advancing age for me in that I can remember. Seeing ambiguous things in the rule book and asking Tony Kong, and he would say, "Oh, well, I was there when we wrote this, and this was why we wrote it this way, and what we were trying to do." And that is exactly what I would say about this one as well, which probably yeah. indicates that more explicitness um, is will not hurt things. I yeah, I can see I can see that 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 argument. Um, I just think it's an it's not a good argument. Um, and the reason I think it's not a particularly good argument, it's very similar to like the constitution or, or bylaws, right? Um, so there's everything from the U.S. constitution and we're say, we, we say, well, there's what's in the constitution and then there's what the authors of the constitution intended. And so then the idea of like, well, do we read the federalist papers? Which I think we should for other reasons, but do we infer meaning from that into the words that are in the Constitution, or do we take the the words of the Constitution verbatim, and those are the core uh, the core words, right? And of course, when you're talking about constitutional law, there's a a much 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 bigger you know question mark around this. But in terms of something smaller, so like I sit on I don't know three four. Something different boards. Um, I'm the chairman of a few of them and the vice chair of a, of at least one or something. And I've written bylaws for several of these organizations, right? Um, so, and that's because I have a sickness and I just love bylaws, right? But anyway, so I've crafted these bylaws. And so if somebody comes to me and says, Hey, Griffin, look at this particular thing in the bylaws. Uh, I need you to interpret this because it's vague, right? I can certainly like I'm I'm highly tempted in that point to provide my opinion because of like well dude I wrote the bylaws I know what I meant when I wrote the bylaws but the problem is the moment that the bylaws get ratified by the assembly they're no longer my bylaws 
right? They, they are the assembly's bylaws and the assembly only can interpret them based on what's actually there, not based on, you know, the great sage of Griffin, you know, the guy behind the curtain in the corner, uh, saying, well, I intend X to be Y, you know, kind of thing. Um, and it's very similar, sort of like in Robert's rules of order. I know I'm, I'm, I'm totally nerding out here on, you know, parliamentary procedure. So bear with me, but like in Robert's rules of order, if you stand and make a motion, the moment that that motion is seconded, that motion is no longer yours. It's, it's part of the assembly, right? And now the assembly decides what to do with it. So the idea that, that there are some people who, who have this mistaken belief that in Robert's rules, if you stand and make a motion, somebody seconds it and there's discussion and then you realize, yeah, this is actually a bad idea. You then stand and say, I want to remove my motion from consideration, that's actually not valid because it's not your motion anymore. Um, it's become the, it's become the motion of the assembly, right? And similarly, if somebody misunderstood the words of your motion, you can offer an amendment to add clarity, but you can't interpret the motion independent of the motion, right? So similarly, like the fact that, you know, so-and-so happened to write the quizzing rule book just doesn't doesn't mean anything to me. And in fact, it kind of sets up a negative, right? Because you had the opportunity of talking to one of the people who was involved in writing the rule book. But what about the other people who don't have access to that person? Um, it sort of, it, it sort of requires if we're going to do things objectively and equally and fairly that we only ever use what's in the rule book. Sure. I think that makes sense. I totally nerded out on you there. Sorry. No, no, it makes sense. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, if, if people differ in interpretation and it takes someone saying like, well, I know what we meant when we wrote it. Well, that's almost, you know, clear you're providing evidence for why it should be written better. <laughs> yes. I, that's a, that's a perfect way of saying it. I totally agree. By saying that you're all, you're incriminating your own writing. So, um, or collective writing. This next one is, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. So um, as of one or two years ago, um, quizzers are required to give all unique words that are in the answer. Um, but, well, I'm not going to get into that and because so, it's the same issue. Um, the rulebook says, on all question types, a quizzer cannot automatically be ruled out of context by a single word, even if it is a unique word. Rather, the quizzer must say a complete thought or phrase that conclusively puts them out of context. So there was a um, a situation at inter um, there was a scenario at internationals last year on a finish the verse where two finish the verses started with the same first four words, but the fifth word was different. Um, and the quizzer got up there and said five words and then started over and said, um, the, the five words from the other verse and was counted correct. Hmm, okay. It was, it, it was challenged saying they started in a wrong context um, and should be incorrect. They started in the wrong verse. And they were overruled, and the reasoning by the quiz master was the rule book says one word cannot take you out of context. And I feel very strongly that one word did not should not take a quizzer out of context, but in this case, five sequential words should absolutely take a quizzer out of context. And the fact that the first four words um, are the same as another place are irrelevant. I don't think the rule book by saying one word should not take you out of context does not mean like one word different between two similar phrases. You know what I mean? I 
agree with the outcome that you want, but the rulebook prevents me from going there. So you think by saying one word, Connecticut of context, it would apply to this situation where there was only one word different between two things that Acquisitor said? I think not... you have. I think you have to go black and white letter of the rulebook. I and and here's the thing. I I see where you're coming from, and I completely agree with it. Like I agree with your desired outcome. I think if there's a five word phrase for a finish the verse. Uh, the fifth word being different in two different uh, finish the verses, and I say one of them first, and then I go back and change. I was clearly out of context, uh, you know, by our understanding of 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 context, not the rulebook's definition. But I am clearly out of context when I say those five words, right? I and I totally agree with that phraseology. The problem is the rulebook as it is presently written prevents me from ruling that way. But could I argue that you are implying that one word can be treated like in a complete vacuum and not? No, I don't think you can, because I think ultimately at the end of the day, what 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 causes me to be wrong with those that fifth word? It is the one word right now. Granted, I said four words prior to it, but I only said one word that took me out of context. And so I think by the letter of the rule book, I can't be counted incorrect. But I agree with you that I should be counted incorrect. So it would be one of those things where I think the rule book needs to be amended. I think it needs to be clarified uh, to some degree. Um, and again, I'm still, I'm not a super big fan of the one word can't take you out of context rule. I, part of me kind of feels like it is a little bit harsh to say that one word can take you out of context. But the thing is, it's objective, and it's pro it's possibly easier to write that objectively in a rulebook than to write one word cannot take you out of context unless it is part of a phrase of five words or something. Hmm. Because, I mean, I, I could probably find two CVRs that differ by one word. Mary was there. Jesus was there. Who was there? An inquisitor yep. can now say one from a completely different context and cannot be counted incorrect as long as only one word is different between the two. I agree. I think the rule book is flawed. Interesting. Either, either we have to expand on this and clarify it more, or I think the easier thing is to just remove the one word uh, and say like, yeah, one word can take you out of context. Cause what the point of this was, was um, if a, it, by saying that unique words are required, it did not want to imply or have happen that if a quizzer ever says a unique word that is out of context, they are out of context, right? Because there's a lot of unique words that are like the contraction I'm or C or, you know, things that are not super significant, right? Right, right. And so it was want to, wanting to protect against that, which is why also why we don't have context that is objective. Because if you said like any two or three word phrase can take a quizzer out of context, then we're just like hunting through everything a quizzer says to see if objectively they said something from somewhere else, which is why like I'm totally fine with it being a subjective calculation of context because I think that's way better for quizzing in general. Um, but that's why this language was put in in the first place was so that we're not um, harshly looking at a single word a quizzer says and saying like, oh, you went to this other place because you said I am instead of I am. Um, but um, I don't know how you could write this differently. Um, I mean, I, maybe this is just one of those cases where 
you hope officials are good and writing the rule book a certain way is not going to um, solve poor officiating, if that makes sense. Yeah, but the thing is, you're complaining about the fact that the officials overruled the challenge and they and and you believe they should have accepted the challenge. I agree with you that it would be better if they could have accepted the challenge, but I think based on the way the rulebook is written, they couldn't accept the challenge. And so and and I'm not I don't know. I'm I'm not sure, but I am not currently convinced that this part of the rulebook could not be written more clearly, better expanded upon, that kind of thing. I'm also not sure it's such a bad idea to count somebody incorrect because of one word that puts them out of context. Um, certainly at the internationals level, I mean, maybe we make it, you know, we fuzzy it up at the district level or something, but at the internationals level, maybe one word can take you out of context. Maybe what, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, I, maybe this is because I want to be decently exacting, but I don't look at this as one word at all. <laughs> I mean, the quizzer said five words, which appear in one single place and happen to start another key verse. I don't know. It, I mean, maybe Technically, it's not a keepers because we're internationals, but sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, and I see your point of view, right? I see your point of view, and I agree with your point of view. I just think the rulebook says one word, and I have to interpret that to mean one word. I can't imply something more on top of the rulebook uh, that I want to be there that I know will make it better, uh, but that's not actually in the rulebook because you know there be dragons. Interesting. Hmm. All right, next one. So, so this is a. I think it's only a PNW rule, but other districts might do something very similar. We try to have at every single meet half, roughly half the questions or exactly half the questions come from the new material, so that we further reward quizzers that keep up with the new material. But what I started figuring out was, as the year goes on, half the questions will come from the new material, and the other half of the questions are going to disproportionately be made up of the previous meets material, and so the Half the questions will not be evenly distributed among all old material, um, and this will continue exacerbating itself all the way through district championships, where at district championships, of the 50% of the questions that are from the old material, well, no, sorry, meet five, because that's the last meet with new material. So at meet five, half the questions will come from the meet five material, and of the other half of the questions, it could be that 75% or 80% of them come from meet four's material. Well, and I was and I was wondering if that's what I, we want. Yeah, I think that's only that's interesting. So you weren't resetting the question pool counts in CBQZ before each meet, then? Correct. Yeah, I think it's easily solved by just resetting the database. So if you reset the database, then the questions are randomly pulled from all the material, um, splitting old versus new as you want, um, and the only time that we would have a poor outcome is if just by complete randomness, some questions get asked more than others, potentially right. at the risk of some questions never being asked in each. Right. And that would only happen across meets, but never have any impact within a single meet. Gotcha. So I think I'm so I'm not, I'm, yeah, because I'm not, I'm saying don't, don't reset the question pool like every quiz, but reset it between meets. Right. Okay. Um, so then the idea, like, like once a question is asked at, you know, in, in quiz four, you know, in that particular meet, 
it is unlikely to surface again unless you run out of questions of that particular type and area, and then it then it surfaces surfaces again, sort of out of natural selection kind of thing. Um, but then those counts get reset later, um, and so you know, in effect, questions. I don't think actually it would have any impact at all, other than just removing the sort of side effect that you're talking about here. Yeah, and actually, since we have roughly 90 quizzes a meet, and I think quizzes generally are about 24 questions um, at the district level, um, and that comes out to 2,100 questions. I mean, it's pretty rare to get a question set really above three or 4,000, and so you're going mm -hmm. to be asking most questions at especially the first three meets, and so it's really just meets four and five you might have a decent swath that don't get asked at the meet, but the odds of a question going unasked over the year are really low. So I think um, resetting between meets is a great practice. Cool. All right. Easy enough. Well, that was easy enough. I thought it was this esoteric question that was going to have no solution. but um, It's an esoteric question that has an easy solution. Somehow it's less satisfying that that's the case. <laughs> All right. You want to take on any international topics we have? Well, so yeah, International starts up in just a handful of days. It is over in Orlando, Florida. I have no idea what the temperature or the humidity is going to be like. Um, I think humidity is going to be a bit bigger factor than uh, temperature. Uh, being that I am a Pacific Northwest kind of guy, I think I'm going to die every time I step out into an un-air-conditioned space. So um, pray for me. But uh, let's see, everybody arrives on Friday, this Friday, July 5th. Uh, registration is in the afternoon, evening time, and then we've got dinner and an opening and a coach's quiz and so forth. And then prelim quizzes start the next Saturday morning at 930. They run all Saturday. We've got prelims on Sunday, uh, XYZs or XYZs, depending upon your nationality of origin uh, happen at 7.30 in the evening on Sunday. And, uh, you know, quizzing continues. There is a break. Uh, on Monday, there's sort of this Orlando fun day, uh, you know, Disney, Universal, SeaWorld, there's all kinds of stuff to do. Uh, and then life happens on Tuesday and Wednesday. And then there's uh, finals uh, that take place uh, late on Wednesday sometime. I forget exactly when it happens on Wednesday. And everybody leaves uh, sometime on Thursday the 11th. So it's going to be a lot of fun, I'm sure. Uh, it's been a long time since I've been to internationals. I think it's been... Oh, golly. 15 years since I've been to internationals? Been a long time. Um, so it'll be, uh, it'll be definitely an interesting experience. I will be quiz mastering. I have no idea what room I'm going to be in. Um, but, uh, you know, it'll be great to be able to see the folks that I saw from Great West. And obviously PNW will have a team there. So it'll be great to see those guys. So very much looking forward to it. That's awesome. I will not be there and I will be following in some manner from afar. Yeah. We will miss you. Um, but I'm, I, they're going to stream some of it. I would think, right. Certainly championships they would stream. Well, they're, yeah, I, I believe they, they streamed everything last year. Um, notwithstanding technical difficulties. And, um, I would hope that that is the plan again. I believe all the key people that spearheaded that last year are still around and involved. So I'm hopeful. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. 
Well, so next year, uh, so next year for PNW, it seems like it's far away, but it's really not because we're in the, you know, the first part of July right now, but what in July, August, so in two and a half months or something, maybe it's a little bit more than two and a half months, uh, is uh, our first meet of the year for PNW. It's the scramble meet. Uh, it'll be hosted at ABC and we'll be kicking off a brand new year. Things are going to be a little bit different. Um, the biggest change is very sad change is that Scott has decided that he's not going to commute, uh, to every quiz meet, uh, from the Midwest, which really just, I think, speaks to Scott's poor character that he's just not going to take one for the team and commute and still be in charge of the program. So it's very sad. Uh, but, uh, you'll have to put up with me. Um, I will, I'll, I will do my best to pretend that I am Scott as the new district coordinator, at least for next year. Scott, however, is still involved. Uh, Scott is going to be the heading up, uh, statisticianizing. What, what, what's the official title? Head statistician? No, I don't think you can be considered a head statistician when there are no others. That's a good, well, no, you're, you're the senior statistician. You, you could go with that. Yeah. I've, but I've I've never done it before, though. So. Well, so you're still the senior. Is there anyone more senior than you? Um, I guess not. So there you go. All right. You are the most high grand inquisitor statistician for P uh, Pacific Northwest Bible quizzing. Yeah. And I will also be my own assistant. <laughs> yep. So uh, because of the magic of the internets. Uh, Scott will, uh, be getting score sheets in real time, actually better than real time. He will be getting score sheets because of CBQZ. He'll be getting score data in super real time, uh, like, like literally question by question. And then we're going to use, you know, uh, phones and taking pictures and throwing him pictures of the score sheets and stuff as a, uh, as, for the official record. And so he'll be able to track in real time, uh, with CBQZ and uh, be able to keep uh, up to date and track things and verify things with the paper score sheets. And uh, looking forward to that. I think it's going to be a great plan. It's very similar, in fact, to what Lily was doing last year. Lily was the grand poobah uh, score head uh, senior, most senior scorekeeper, or sorry, sorry, not scorekeeper, most senior statistician uh, last year. And, and uh, so very similar situation this year where uh, Scott will be from afar uh, running the stats, but I think that'll be, that'll work out just nicely. Um, other than that, I think generally the year is going to progress very, fairly similarly. We've got a slightly different schedule for meets. Um, but otherwise it's sort of the usual suspects in terms of churches. I am still working feverishly to recruit, uh, and evangelize quizzing and trying to get other churches involved. I know other folks in PNW are doing the same thing. So that will be an exciting uh, prospect to try to get some more churches involved in the program for next year and the years to come. So I don't know, Scott, anything else you want to talk about or questions about next year? Um, no, I can't think of anything else. Okay. Well, one last note on CBQZ. Uh, so CBQZ is getting adopted like wildfire uh, across all of sort of CMA quizzing at this point. So I'm getting new user requests every week from all over the place. Uh, they're almost all from non PNW locations, uh, which is 
sort of stands to reason because I think most people in PNW who want a CBQZ account already have one. So anyway, getting kind of requests from all over the place. And as admin, I'm seeing them all pop in and it's kind of exciting to be like, Ooh, I, I have no idea who this person is, but they are part of some district that's out there. And so it's kind of exciting to see it kind of proliferate that way. Uh, CBQZ is going to be used at internationals. Uh, the answer uh, judges are going to be using CBQZ for answer judge uh, awesomeness. Uh, we will not be using it to run quizzes at the quizmaster level. We're, we're still going to be using uh, paper and so forth, uh, but we'll use it for uh, referencing material and so forth. We're also not going to use it for scorekeeping. Uh, we're using a um, uh, it's sort of like an Excel spreadsheet kind of deal, but it's not in Excel. It's it's part of a Libra Office or Open Office uh, spreadsheet uh, formula that they've put together. So we're going to use that. Uh, the scorekeepers are going to use that to uh, run. Uh, stats. But then uh, over the course of the summer, I'm looking to make some changes in CBQZ that are sort of reflect some things that we've experienced in PNW, but also things that I am sort of anticipating are going to happen in the fall because we've got several other districts that look like they're going to be, or they're certainly making noises about potentially using CBQZ within their districts next year to run quizzes at the district level. So, or, or certainly at the coaches level for, for practices. So there are certain things that I want to change around. So one of the things that we experienced in PNW this last year was when you have good internet service at a church or at a hosting location, CBQZ works great. When you have unreliable internet, uh, where it kind of flakes out uh, for 30 seconds at a time or longer, CBQZ runs into problems all over the place. It really does need a persistent internet connection. That being said, I think I figured out a way where it doesn't have to have one necessarily. So things like the automated scoreboard and like, you know, if you, if you've got your cell phone and you want to follow a quiz in real time, that stuff wouldn't work if the internet went out. Uh, but I want to get it to a point where I want to change around some of the technology, the core technology of CBQZ such that if you're in the middle of the quiz and the internet goes away, you can still just keep going with the quiz. Like it doesn't actually interrupt anything. And even so much so that if you are starting a new quiz, you can start a new quiz entirely with the internet offline and it'll still work. Uh, I don't think it'll be too hard to do that, but that's definitely got my focus over this year is to just make CBQZ a lot more bulletproof. And then also to change around some of the UI a bit so that folks who are not part of PNW can use it a little bit more intuitively. I mean, there's a, there's a fair bit that seems intuitive to me, but of course I wrote it. Uh, and Scott, you know, it's probably seems intuitive to Scott because I'm telling him how to use it, you know, these sorts of things. But to somebody who has never, who, who has never had a tutorial, who's just logging in for the first time, is it intuitive enough for them? I'm not convinced of that. So uh, there are some things that we can do to improve there. So that stuff's coming out this summer, uh, hopefully get done before too far into September and into October so that it's reliable and usable for districts uh, across the US and Canada. So look forward to that. And of course, if you guys have any questions or feature requests, I know there are a couple of folks within PNW who are 
uh, uh, ragging on me to get the quizzer uh, study functionality complete. I promise I'm going to, I just, I, I think some of the other stabilization stuff is higher priority right now, but, um, but yeah, very much if uh, folks have ideas for new features or, uh, you know, if you spot any bugs, I very much want to hear from you. So please let us know. That sounds awesome. Right. I think, I think if you can technically pull it off, you really only need to have, you know, five questions stored um, at any given time for a quiz to be able to proceed pretty seamlessly um, and it would take a, a prolonged internet outage to hold stuff up at that point. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I mean, if we're going to do that, I'm, I, I'm, I'm studying the effect of actually taking the entire questions database and actually preloading it in the browser, um, which sounds insane, but we preload the entire material set. So it's not, I mean, it's certainly a lot bigger. Uh, the question set is certainly significantly bigger than the material set, but um, it might work. Uh, so I'm playing around with some of those ideas. Interesting. And yeah, the open office scorekeeping template that CMD has created is, it's pretty slick. It works just like Excel, but doesn't require the user to have purchased um, access to the Microsoft suite. So um yeah, it's pretty cool, and it makes things very error-proof for the scorekeeper because um, rosters come in automatically once you select the team names, and then if you, for example, select an error for one team, you cannot select any. You cannot select correct questions for them for the next question. So it's it has little checks built into it like that. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Well, any other last-minute ideas before I hop on a plane? Um, I think we would love lots of topic ideas we might have a decent amount of stuff to talk about regarding internationals but as the summer progresses we may not have weekly podcasts due to lack of topics but if we have awesome listener questions and things that griffin and i disagree with each other about we will definitely have lots and lots of podcasts yeah definitely yeah i, I feel we'll we'll definitely we'll have uh, a lot of internationals recap but then beyond that uh, maybe we kind of take a few steps back. We certainly, the, the show is called Inside Quizzing. So we definitely talk, uh, about some very esoteric things about quizzing. And we also nerd out a lot as we have in this episode, but maybe we take a step back and we do a few episodes about, uh, you know, geared more toward, you know, folks who have never heard about what quizzing is about and some of the basics. How do you start a team? How do you study? How do you memorize? Uh, and kind of work our way towards uh, scramble meet, maybe. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Cool. All right. Well, with that, guys, we thank you for listening. And of course, as Scott said, we very much would like to hear from you for any sort of comments, concerns, feedback of any kind. We'd very much like to hear from you. Please email us at iq at cbqz.org. So iq for inside quizzing at cbqz.org, which is also the website for the CBQZ app. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle there is at Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will wish you all well and God bless. And I will see you all either at internationals or in a couple, three months. Have a good night, everybody. 